0: Ruth chapter four. Uh, let, me, let me bring you up to where we're at in Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a book that starts off with great calamity. We see two women. One is a, uh, a widow uh, named Naomi, and she has a daughter-in-law, named Ruth who now is also a widow they it, it starts off where they flee from their hometown or their home city Naomi does to a place called Moab she flees from Bethlehem which is called House of Bread and she moves away because there was a great famine in the land the move the, the story the movie the story continues uh, with uh, ten years of difficulty and trials throughout their family you have uh, really three funerals you have Naomi Husband Elimelech dies, and you have her two sons, Malon and Kilion, die. And that leaves her now with two daughter in laws. One's named Ruth, and one's name is Orpah. Uh, Ruth clings to her mother in law and stays with her, and now she moves back to Bethlehem because she hears that God is once again providing for the Israelites. And so they come back to Bethlehem, and they have no husbands to take care of them. And so Ruth, the faithful daughter-in-law goes and gleans in the fields. Now, because they don't have provision, she has to do this. This is sort of like going to a modern-day soup kitchen to to be provided for. This is what Ruth has to do for her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law is hoping that one day God would provide for her a man, a redeemer that would protect her and that would provide for her. And so the scriptures tell us that she happens to land and end up in the gleaning in the field of Boaz. Boaz is a stud. Write that down, ladies. Boaz is a stud. He ends up in his field. And what happens is seven, uh, seven months uh, plus, he allows her to glean in his field. He is a man who's protected her. He's a man who's provided for her. He's shown, uh, the scripture says, his kindness to her. And so you see this story unpack and you're thinking this is going to, he is a guy who's looked at Ruth and he he saw favor in her and like he wants, and he's pursuing, and you're thinking certainly in seven months he's going to ask her out on something and he doesn't. He doesn't have any game. Write that down, ladies, as well. He doesn't have any game and uh, he doesn't pursue her, doesn't make those first steps. And so she has the crazy mother-in-law who begins to give her really bad advice and she tells her, kind of nudges her, look, he's going to be at this place in the middle of night. It's actually where a lot of prostitutes hang out. It's going to end up really well. Just Go down, lay him beside him and uh, tell him, you know, that you want him to marry you. That's it's going to be fine. And this is where we learn that God sovereignly works through really bad advice. And he does. And uh, so she's there um, laying beside him. For telling him that she wants him to pursue her in marriage. He's blown away because she's younger. I don't know if he's an ugly dude or not, but he's, he's, he's shocked that she wants to marry him and he's humbled. And he says, well, I can't because there's a closer kinsman in line that, that should marry you. And so we'll explain a little bit of what that means, but there's, there's a closer kinsman, And so there's a, oh, really? And so finally, at the very end of Ruth chapter three, Naomi finally gives good advice. She tells Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, look, Boaz is going to take care of this and let us wait and find out what happens. And now chapter three ends with everything, all, everything that's happened in, in Ruth is now on the hinges of a sovereign, kind, and gracious God. And we really don't know what's going to happen next until we get to Ruth chapter four. And that's where we're at this morning. Ruth chapter four, starting in verse one, it says this, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now, here's, here's what's taken place here. Um, you have this nearest of kin that should have stepped in for Ruth and Naomi. I'll explain how this works in a moment. He is called a redeemer. Okay, Now let me explain what this means uh, culturally for these people who were, who were living in this culture. Let me explain how this worked. A redeemer was to come in and help a family member, specifically a widow who is struggling. And so there's two ways. Now stay with me here because it's very important. There's two ways that a redeemer would provide for the widow or the one who is having a, a great amount of suffering in their life. And this is God. He's putting a provision in where these people would be provided for who were suffering. And so what he does, uh, the first thing that he would do is you would see a provision for land. Now, if you, if, if you want to just hold your place in Ruth, flip over to Leviticus 25. Let me just show you how God has set up a provision for people who were suffering, specifically widows. Leviticus 25, verse 25, it says this. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds it a sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he has sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and return it to his property." But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what, what, he so, what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. So a redeemer was supposed to uh, be provisioned for the land. So if, if a woman was stuck with land, the redeemer was supposed to come and take it so that her families from generations to come could be provided for, all right? So land was a big deal in this culture. So if you had land, you could could help people that came after you and and, and their grandbabies and their grandbabies. You You could do that, all right? And so what's happening is this Redeemer is supposed to step in. This is God's way of providing for people who are suffering to come in and take that land. So not only is there a, a, a land responsibility for a redeemer, but there's also a marriage responsibility for a redeemer, all right? Now, look at, let me show you this in Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, it says this, if your brothers go, if your brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be remain outside the family to a stranger, Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He would not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him in and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I don't want I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife, listen to this, his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of elders and put his, put his sandal off and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Aren't you glad we're not under the law anymore, by the way, right? I mean, could you imagine this responsibility that you would have as a brother-in-law if you're wiped Suppose she's a pain in the neck, Right? I mean, suppose she, man, man, suppose she's just a, like a loose cannon. And you've got to marry this girl. Like, come on, right? Come on. You've got to marry this girl. man. You, and as and, and I lived in that culture and I had, you know, a sister-in-law that was a pain, I'd be like, God, please protect my brother. Keep him safe. Lord, don't let him die. Please don't let him die. I don't have to marry that crazy woman. You know, that's what's happening. And look, if you didn't step in... You wouldn't be publicly humiliated. you got to walk around with one shoe for the rest of your life. You know, you get, she gets to spit in your face in front of all the elders, the, the high authorities that are at the gate. And man, what a, you, what a, what a sad moment, right? What a sad moment that you have to do these things if you are the Redeemer. And so Ruth and Naomi at this point should have already had a Redeemer. I mean, can you not see that this is a big deal I mean, Numbers twenty-five even talks about if if your husband's wife is murdered. This is the part that I would like. If your husband's wife is murdered, um, you have to go, or your husband. Yeah, if your if your brothers, there it is. If your brothers murdered, all right. If your brothers murdered you have to go and avenge his death. Now, I would love that part, like the brave hearts of, I would like, I'll sign up for that part, but marrying your wife, no thank you, right? I'll avenge her death, and I, that will be my, uh, my, my moral obligation to the law, but I will not go and marry her, like, right? And so, this is a big deal in this culture, the, the redeemer, the kingsman redeemer that would step in and provide for the absent husband who dies, right? And so, Ruth and Naomi should have had this guy step in already, but he hasn't. But we know that he exists because of the way chapter 3 ends. And then we see him introduced here in chapter 4. And it says this. So Boaz said, this is when he saw this redeemer. He says, turn aside, friend. Sit down here and turn aside. And and, and he sat down. And he he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Now, now notice what happens here, because this is very interesting. You have Boaz at the gate with this man, with this redeemer. And the gate is sort of like the town hall. This is where all the um, really business transactions or legal matters were handled. This is kind of like a city hall, if you will. And they're here with the elders of the city, which is kind of like the, the big decision makers of the city. And this guy comes in, and when Boaz sees him, we know based on how Boaz addresses this guy of how insignificant he is, because he says, hey, friend, right? If you, if you, know, if you know me well, you will know. I, I have a photograph. I can remember everyone's face, but I have trouble remembering people's names. But, so, but the people I'm close to, I remember their names. So can you imagine our other Elder Scott coming in? I'm like, hey, chief, Right? hey, pal, like when I, when I do that, I don't remember your name. Okay, hey, dude, dude, how's it going, right? Because I don't remember your name. I'm sorry, I love you, but I, I don't remember your name. I remember your face. I promise you if I see you 10 years from now, I will still remember your face. But names I'm like, I'm horrible at. And so Boaz is showing, look, hey, friend, you're, you're insignificant. You, hey, chief, hey, pal, hey, buddy, right? Hey, Mr. such and such, Mr. so-and-so, Mr. who cares, right? And he says, look, sit down. He tells these elders, sit down. We're going to deal with this now. Look in verse 3. So they said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I'll come after you. And he says, what does he say? I'll redeem it. I'll redeem it. Now, notice this. This is something interesting. We don't really know why Naomi has land to begin with. Uh, we know that she's a pretty manipulative lady throughout the Bible. So we know, man, if she wants land, she probably probably get it, right? But most of the time in, culture, in this culture, women do not own land. But she owns a parcel land, so it's a part of land, and this guy has a responsibility as a redeemer to take this land. Now, I want you to see this, because this guy is absent. Uh, if you had a, a, a trial in your family, and you had someone live down the road from you, and let's just say someone dies in your family, let's say your husband dies, or your children die, and you have someone that lives right down the road, and they never call you. They never show up and say, how how can I pray for you? How can I provide? What what do you need? What are your needs right now? No, you would be shocked and astounded that this person was this absent in your family, would you not? And so this is this guy. He should have already known this story. He should have already known. Man, Ruth is suffering, but now he's interested because there's land. I, I get land out of this. I'll take it. I'll redeem it. I'll redeem it. So we can see right here, this guy's heart is not in the right place. He's, he thinks, oh, land, parcel of land, ding, 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 I'll take that. But then what Boaz does is very interesting, all right? Now, I want you to notice how sly Boaz is. First of all, the way he addresses this guy. But secondly, we see what, how he tries to persuade this guy not to do this. Look what he says, verse 5. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also, behind curtain number two, acquire. Ruth, oh, did I mention she's a, a Moabite? Um, and, and also the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance. Oh, also um, she has a um, bitter, angry mother-in-law who follows her around everywhere, right? So you not only get land, but you get a girl from a cult that's widowed and sad, and then you have her bitter, angry mother-in-law. So you don't, it's, you know, one, you know, one for the price of, you know, three for the price of one. You get this. This is the deal. And then what does he say? What does this guy respond? He says, the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself. At least I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption from yourself. I cannot redeem it. And this guy only thinks about himself, does he not? And he's not thinking about, man, how can, I, how can I really help these girls? How can I really serve these girls? God has set up provision in his word for people who would live in Bethlehem. They would have heard this truth that they're supposed to do these things. This is a part of the law, and he does not care about the law. He says, I'm, you know what? This, this, would, this would be too difficult for me right now. I don't want to love or serve you right now. I'm just going to—I can't redeem it. That's, that's too much. Land I'll take, but two crazy ladies, no thank you, Right? No, thank you. Verse seven. Now, this is a custom in former times of Israel concerning the redeeming and the exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this is the manner manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the redeemer said to Boaz, "Buy it for yourself," he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and the people, "You are my witnesses this day." I have bought the land from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, and, and, and also the Ruth, the Moabite. Every time the, the author mentions Ruth, says the Moabite, the widow of Malon, and I have brought to be my wife to propitiate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are my witnesses this day. Then all of the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily and, uh, and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is what these witnesses are seeing this redemptive story unfold of Boaz stepping in and being the redeemer that this such and such should have been. And we see already the kind of character that Boaz has. He cares about this woman's purity. He cares about obeying what God says. There's a kinsman closer to me. And not only that, but he's willing to step in as a substitute for this other redeemer, and not only that, but people were beginning to see this story unfold before their eyes, and they're recognizing—listen—they're recognizing what they've already seen about God and how He's redeemed others. It says, "May it be like Rachel and Leah." Who were Rachel and Leah? They were also women who were barren. If you look in Ruth chapter one, Ruth is barren; she's childless. And scripture even says multiple times, if you you look at women who cannot conceive children, it's amazing how often it actually says, the Lord opened up their womb. If you look at stories like um, Elizabeth, if you look at Ruth, if you look at um, Rachel and Leah, they're responsible now for birthing the 12 tribes of Israel. And these Israelites are looking and saying, this is an amazing story, and it reminds us of this story of God's redemption. So they're already tying it in of God's redemption, but little did they know what they actually see before them. Look in verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Who's Tamar? Tamar. She reminds us of Ruth because Ruth came from a Moabite country, a country who is pagan that God was always against. Who's Tamar? She's a Canaanite woman who came from a country that God was always against. Tamar uh, gives birth uh, to a child that was known throughout Israel, to Judah even in one of the messiest contexts, do you see that happen? The same thing that happens in Ruth. Ruth uh, gives, is going to give birth to a child here in a moment that in a place where, called the Judges, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And it just blows your mind because people are already noticing and comparing this reminds me of a story where God redeemed this family. This reminds me of a story where God redeemed this family. And may it be known that it would be the same way with Ruth and Boaz. And so verse 13 is going to be a crux that shows us how God brings all of these things together. I want you to notice some of the language in verse 13. Verse 13, it says this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son everything that we've seen in Ruth so far is that the writer has been very explicit about the details In chapter 1, you see the details around around suffering. In chapter 2, you see the details of Ruth gleaning in the field. In chapter 3, you see a a whole night of passion, of communication, back and forth, of dialogue. And you have Ruth and Naomi the whole time throughout chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. The two things that they need are food and family. They're, They're without both of those things, food and family. And now you see in one verse... Everything that they're looking for is found. They have a baby. I mean, this guy's a sniper. First shot, right? Have a baby, right? By the way, it didn't happen the same night. They didn't get married and have a baby. But man, I'm assuming that this happened pretty quick. Pretty quick. And so you have this story is laid out very interesting because, because here's what you have. God has been working in the background most of the story, Remember, she just happened to land and glean in boaz 's field. Uh, you have stories that are that are just very interesting that God uses really poor advice in chapter three that she would lay down beside Boaz, and God would somehow use this really weird scenario for his glory and for his purposes. So you know that god 's been working in the background god 's been doing these things in the background and kind of weaving his sovereign plan in and out he 's caused and effect he 's causing calamities to bring people to himself. We need We know that he's doing these things in the background, but but there's only two places in Ruth that it shows that he is in the foreground, that he is causing certain things out. We know this because what happens here in Ruth 13 is very similar to what happens in Ruth 1. What are the two things they're looking for? Food and what? Food and family, right? How? When did God give them food? Well, it says this, Ruth 1.6. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, Moab that the what? Lord visited his people and has given them what? Given them what? Food, right. Food. Three people over there. Thank you. Food. He's given them food. So what are they looking for? Food and family. When does God show up in the foreground? Not in the background, but the foreground. In the forefront, it's when food is provided for. The Lord has given us food. What's the next one? Family. When does God show up in the foreground? The other place. Ruth four thirteen, And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. He's been in the background the whole time, but the two times that he shows up in the foreground is when food is provided for and family has been provided for. What does that show you about a good and gracious God? He's our provider. And the author is intentional to show you those truths. He provides food. He provides family. He's a good, kind God. And so this story It begins with three funerals. Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. And the book ends with a wedding, with a child being born, and with a happy grandmother. Only God could do this, right? Only God could redeem history as we know it. And this is what he does. In Ruth. Look in verse 14. Look what happens next. Then when the woman said to Naomi, the grandmother, the happy grandmother, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. This is the only time any child has been named a redeemer. And she be, the res- you, in verse 14 it says, and shall be to you a restorer of Life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, the number of perfection, seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid it on, on his lap, just like every grandmother does, lay, it on, lay him on her lap, became his nurse. when the woman of the neighborhood gave him and said, say, gave him a name, saying, "A son." It's been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I'm blown away by this story. And I think it's, it's amazing because what happens is at the very end, you have this picture of Ruth has been highlighted, Boaz has been highlighted, but the author, it, it just puts a little spotlight on Naomi here at the end who's holding her chubby grandbaby, right? And where does Ruth begin? Ruth chapter one begins with Naomi saying what? I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The beginning of Ruth chapter one, Naomi starts off with her hands empty and Ruth chapter four, her hands filled with joy because she's holding her grandson and I'm just blown away by this. And now, Naomi has friends. Bitter old woman has friends. God's brought this bitter old woman friends that can delight in what God is doing in her life. And they are, they are singing praises because of this, may his name be renowned in Israel. In other words, may his name be famous. May we always remember this story of redemption. Little do they know what they are actually saying. Because here's what they do. Here's what happens with Ruth. This is where everyone just cuts your brain off and you stop reading Ruth in verse 17. Most of us stop reading at 17 because of what happens next? 18 through 21 are names that we can't pronounce, right? We say, i just skip that part. That's just a bunch of names. Who cares, Right? When you, when you get to places in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see a list of names, you typically skip it. I don't know anyone right now that's like, man, I am, God is rocking my world and the genealogies. He's just showing me so much about myself, and myself. I don't know anyone that's doing that. But I wanted to show you why the genealogies are so important. Because the author shows us how this line continues. So we know David, he's the king of Israel, right? He's the most famous king, right? Him and Solomon, we know this story, but look, look at what takes place in Ruth 18. Ruth 4 18. It says this And these are the generations of Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered uh, Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David why is that so significant? Have we seen this before? Is this anywhere else in the Bible, this genealogy? Did we, are we familiar with genealogies at all where we've seen this? Man, this, these names seem familiar. This whole line seems familiar. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it says this. If you were to start in verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zinar by Tamar, and Perez by Hezron. Hezron, and then goes to the, um, Aminadab and then uh, Nashon, and then Salmon, and then Boaz, and then Obed, and then Jesse, and then David. If you were to even go down further, it, you have other kings, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah, I mean, you keep on going down. Zerubbabel, my favorite. Um, if you have, you know... Jacob. And then as you get all the way down, all the way down to verse 16, and it says this, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. And these women are praying, may his name be great in Israel. May his name be great throughout the world, right? Because that is what happens You have a messed up family that should never have any significance whatsoever. And if you even look at Ruth, it's not like the other Old Testament books where God is speaking through thunder. There's no big miracle that takes place. There's no burning bush. There's no tapping some rock and it turns to water. None of that takes place. If anything, it's just subtle things of a love story. But then what God shows you at the very end with just a, a few amazing verses that this is tied to the big picture and the grand narrative of Jesus. And it's a beautiful story. And it's also messy. And if you were to look at these people, I mean, you can go through and look at the highlights. Like, you got Solomon, you know, the wisest and wealthiest person we've ever seen. And he also was married to tons of women, which makes him one of the dumbest men who's ever seen. But we know, man, God is, wow, he Ecclesiastes, right? Everything's meaningless. Awesome. You know, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Amos, Josiah. Josiah was like preaching when he was like seven, right? And so you're you're looking at the story and you're going, wow, there's some great, you know, some really great pictures in there. But then if you look at the other parts, Tamar, Tamar's mentioned in Jesus's genealogy in Matthew 1. Tamar is, that's in Jesus's family. Are you kidding me? Tamar is a woman who dressed like a prostitute so that she would, would be impregnated by some other guy. That's not a good story. And God uses that so that his son would be born. Okay, Rahab is mentioned in Jesus's genealogy. Are you kidding me? Uh, Rahab, it, if you look in Hebrews 3, 11, 3, it's it's the people who had faith, by the way, it says Rahab the harlot. Like she never got past that identity, right? Rahab the prostitute, you know her, right? That's the way that she's listed. And she has a spiritual gift of lying, right? And she's in the genealogy of Jesus. If you look at David, if you look at David's wife Bathsheba, who gives birth to Solomon, how does that relationship begin? Oh, great. He saw her bathing on a roof. He decided to assault her and then kill her husband. Great relationship. Good story, right? And this is all in Jesus' genealogy. All of it. All the list of messy, weird scenarios of, of really, literally, like the judges, everyone's doing right in their own eyes, but still God uses it. For his good and his glory to present to us his perfect son. So, if there's anything that we can learn from Ruth, is that in spite of us, God still gets the glory. He's a faithful and kind God. And there ain't no way that I want you to leave here and walk away and say, Ruth's the hero of the story. Or Naomi's the hero of the story, or Boaz is the hero of the story. No. There's only one hero of every story, and that's the hero that this book, Ruth, is pointing to, and it's Jesus. So I don't want you to, to take Boaz and say Boaz equals Jesus, but there are some pictures. This is an imperfect picture of a beautiful, wonderful picture. In Christ. But let me just show you some comparisons. All right? Just as Boaz pursued Ruth, who was a foreigner, so does Jesus pursue us, who were once, as scripture says, alienated from God. Just as Boaz was a near kinsman to Ruth, so Jesus, in becoming a human being, made himself like us and near to us. Just as Boaz was able, he's able to redeem Ruth, so Jesus, in remaining sinless, is alone able to redeem us from sin just as boaz was willing to redeem ruth so as jesus became obedient to death even death on a cross so as boaz paid the price to redeem ruth jesus paid the price for us to be saved in the blood of a cross by the shedding of his own blood just as boaz was faithful. Jesus is more faithful. Jesus is the true and better Boaz. And I, I, I don't think this book was written so that the arrow would point to Boaz. I believe this book was written under the authority of God's word and the inspiration of his Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit doesn't act on his own authority. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus to light so that we could see Jesus beautiful and glorified and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so what he's doing is he's using an instrument, Boaz, as an arrow to point down generations to generations to generations. The story is only about Jesus. And I want you to see that. Because there's no redemption outside of the name of Jesus. And when I take this story and I look at it and I look at Mr. So-and-so that's not mentioned even in the genealogies, he ain't mentioned. God just uses a faithful man that he chooses to use for his glory. And then he uses a bunch of really messed up people for his glory. So if you're messed up and you're broken and you've got too much shame and you've got too much guilt over the sins in your life, listen, Jesus's family is pretty messed up too, all right? All right, there's, there's hope in the gospel. We can have a redeemed legacy that points to Jesus. Did you know that your life should be to point to Jesus, so that when people look at you, they want to see Jesus more. When people look at your family, they want to see Jesus more. And I look at the story and I think about this is this is how God has chosen to bring about his son into the world. And I'm blown away by my own family. If I were to go in the past and work through the history of my family of Tugwell men who are hotheads, right? And I could look through, I could find addictions, and I could find substance abuse and alcohol abuse and jail time for for my wife's family and my family. I mean, if if you were to take our wives, my wife's family, my family, and put them together, you would not have a good marriage, all right? Outside of Jesus, it shouldn't work. But here's what the gospel does. It changes and transforms not only individuals for the gospel, but also legacies for the gospel. And so when people look back and they see, man, Ben has anger issues, and they see, you know, before that, those guys had anger issues, and the grandparents, and it's just like an inherited thing. Don't you see inherited sins that are brought throughout families and generations? Generations, you ever see that? When people see that, what if I, because of the gospel, what if I fight sin in such a way that maybe my, my son, Finn, doesn't have to see, and my son, Gideon, doesn't have to see things that I've seen? What if there's a redemption thing there? Maybe their children will be different because of what the gospel does in my life. I can't guarantee my son's salvation. I can't guarantee his son's salvation, but maybe they would see, man, dad wasn't perfect, but he he certainly pointed us to Jesus. And now the way that he sees his marriage and the way that he sees the way he raises his children is different. What What if we could that would set a trajectory of a legacy that people don't, can't figure this thing out, but they can at least point to one point and say, you know what, that's when Jesus really did something. That's when Jesus really showed up and Jesus really changed a person's heart from the inside. And we can't explain it, we can't, but we can point back to it. When we look at Boaz. God just uses his faithfulness in a way we can't understand. And now thousands of years later, we're sitting in a room talking about his faithfulness only because God has done the, that work in him. And it all points us to Jesus so most of us here in this room are young. For you young men specifically, most of you don't think or care about the legacy that you will one day set. I mean, you're thinking about tomorrow, right? Your plan is like, I'm gonna marry a girl who's you know, easy to handle and I'm gonna get a good job and that's it, that's like your life, that's, that's what you wanna do. But are you preparing for your legacy for the gospel that your children, your grandchildren would remember you because of your commitment to Jesus and your love for Jesus and that you position your life around Jesus, that you position your marriage around Jesus. Some of you, some of you ladies need the same thing. You, 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 you look in the magazines and this is who you want to be, right? The picture that I want you to have is a grandmother who's committed to Christ, that your grandbabies would come up in your lap so that you would tell them stories about Jesus, and they would remember you because your commitment to Jesus, that's what matters. Anytime we put out a position in our lives around other things, we are selling ourselves short, and we're only creating a monument for ourselves, not an arrow that points to Jesus. We're all arrows that point to Jesus, by the way. And so here's what I want to see. And I cannot promise this church will exist 100 years from now. I have no idea. I mean, we drive through Greenville, and you see these old-timey churches with beautiful steeples and stained-glass windows, and they're founded in 18, blah, 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 right? I don't know if Integrity Church will ever do that. I really don't care if my plaque is up and the founder or pastor. I don't care. Here's what I care about, and here's what the leaders of this church care about. It's what we do today and tomorrow and next year going to set you to have a legacy for the gospel, to where people can look back in history and say, this is what Jesus did in these people's lives, and their children are different. Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, And their children are different as a response to the gospel. They're blown away by what Jesus has done. That's all I care about, that we could see gospel legacy set from this moment to the years to come. That's all I want to see in this church. And God, help us, right? Help us to repent and know that the gospel is sufficient enough. And as your pastor, this is what we want to see in this church. So we have to repent of our idols, to repent of the things that we try to build, the monuments that we try to build to ourselves to point the arrows to us. It's about pointing it to Christ. Let's pray that God would help our legacy this morning. Jesus.